You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with us now. Deuteronomy is a series of four sermons or four messages that Moses gives to the next and new generation that's about to enter the promised land. And you remember that the first generation had come out of Egypt and they were slaves there, and, and God told Moses to go and to free those people. And, and of course, they, they went out and they crossed the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted, and, and we've studied all of that. And the first generation was really, because of their unbelief, all died in the wilderness. And God was uh, you know, showing them that because of their unbelief, uh, they wouldn't be able to enter into the land. They, they would have to die and perish in the wilderness. And so this new generation now needs to be reminded of the things that the first generation has already been taught. And Deuteronomy means the second law. Although Deuteronomy is not simply a repetition of the original law, it's more of an adaptation or an expansion of much of the original law that was given on Mount Sinai. And of course, that first law was given to that first generation, but they've all passed on now. And so here they are up against the promised land. They're, they're in that place that they've been before, but because of their unbelief, they didn't enter in. They, they sent the spies instead and and they got a negative report, and so they didn't enter in because of the giants in the land and their unbelief. And so they wandered around for 38 and a half years. And here they are again, this new generation. The old generation has passed on, and this new generation is about to enter in, and God tells Moses, look, you need to remind them of the things that their parents and grandparents were taught as they're about to cross in. And it's always good for us to be reminded of things. Second Peter 1.12, Peter says, For this reason, as he's talking about growing in your faith, adding to your faith these things. If you read, it's a, it's a great passage. The first 11 verses of Second Peter. Talking about growing in your relationship with Christ. And he says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. And so, like Paul says, it's, it's not repetitive for me to say these things. For you it is safe, he says in Philippians. We need to be reminded. We need to hear things over and over again. And even in Bible teaching, there's things that, that we hear time and again. And as you read through the Word, there's themes and Topics that are covered time and again and we hear the same thing. And for us, it's safe. We need to hear those things. And this new generation need to, needed to be reminded of these things. And so as Moses begins this series of addresses to this new generation of Israelites, he reviews the past history of the nation to begin with here in these first four chapters that we're going to look at tonight. And it is wrong if we dwell in the past. If that's all that we're doing is simply living in the past, 
that's wrong and it's not a, a great place for us to be. And, and many Christians find themselves in that place where they talk about the good old days, you know, and 20 years ago I did this and 10 years ago I was doing that and I was serving the Lord and I was reading the Word and I was excited and I was on fire for the Lord. And it makes you wonder as you hear that person, what is going on today? And it's never good to be living completely in the past. But we can never understand the present or prepare for the future if we're ignorant of the past. We need to learn from it. History is a great teacher and the the things that we've experienced, hopefully if we're using wisdom, we won't go through those things again. That is wisdom. It's knowledge applied. And so as Moses recounts the history of the first generation, it's so that they don't make the same mistakes. And we need to look at the the lives of, of these men and women in the Old Testament and, and learn from them. And often people say, well, the Old Testament, I mean, there's nothing there for me. It's boring. It's just a bunch of old stories. But there's much for us to glean and to gain. And it says there in verse 1, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. And so these are the words which Moses spoke to the children. It's now beginning as he is going to share with them. His heart is he's going to share with them a series of four sermons. And it's interesting because remember one of the things that, that Moses was afraid to do when he was asked by God to go and to free the Israelites? Remember what he said? I, I'm not a, a articulate guy, Lord. I, this isn't my calling. I'm not good at this. You've got to raise somebody else up. I'm not the guy. And and the Lord said, okay, well, we'll send Aaron, your brother. He's good with words. And and Aaron, in a lot of ways, was a hindrance to Moses' ministry because Moses didn't trust the Lord. But here's Moses now just totally sharing and being articulate. Sometimes we sell the Lord short on what He wants to do with our lives because we don't believe that... God can do anything with anyone. We're just a vessel. And it says, It, it is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. And so... The nation was gathered on the plains of Moab here, on the east side of the Jordan. And it has taken them 40 years to get there. And yet it tells us in verse 2 that it is only an 11-day journey from Egypt to where they were supposed to go as an 11-day journey. A couple weeks at the most was a legitimate time of travel. I mean, it wasn't like... There wasn't any time of travel, but 40 years was a little much. And because of their unbelief, they wandered around until they all died out there. And 
I think there's great application for us in that when we come to know Christ, there is a legitimate and reasonable amount of time where God is maturing us and God is moving us through that desert experience and, and we say stupid things and we don't understand things and, and maybe we're not servants and, and we don't understand how to use our gifts and, and we're sort of selfish and we're learning these things. There's a reasonable amount of time where God is maturing us, but then there comes a point where God says, okay, it is now time for you to enter in and maybe... It's about an 11-day process, you know, not literally, but you get where I'm going. It's not a 40-year process. And some of us are in this wandering period, and there's a lot of death. There's a lot of death in that for us. Immaturity brings death in our lives. It brings a death in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our workplaces, in our ministry. And... Some of us are just in that place where there's nothing happening. And I've said it before, but I think it's worth mentioning that that 38 plus year period where they were wandering around, there isn't a lot written about it. Most of what's written about is the first few months that they were entering the land and then this time here and then there's little pockets of stories but there's really not a lot written about their wandering around and I think for those of us that are in that place of just wandering around in our lives in the desert there isn't really much happening Jesus said in John 15 5 that apart from me you can do nothing and of course we can be accomplishing and doing a lot of things just like they were. I mean, they were, they were doing stuff. They were setting up tents and tearing down tents and eating meals and, you know, laughing with their families and they were doing lots of things. But in the eternal scope of things, they were accomplishing nothing because here sat the promised land and they weren't entering into it. And God desires to move us, you guys, from a life dominated by the flesh to a life dominated by the Spirit. And it's up to us if we'll enter into that or not. And I think Paul describes this struggle in his own life in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about the sin, about the flesh, about the old man, and he talks about the fact that the old man has been buried with Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. And he's getting us to understand that, look, you don't have to identify with your old man anymore. Yeah, he's there, but he's dead, and you need to reckon him to be dead on a daily basis. So it's like, you wake up in the morning and you remind yourself that the old man is dead. And that word reckon there in Romans 6.14, it's an accounting term. It means to add up the facts and come to a conclusion based upon those facts that your old man is dead. Even though he's there with you, literally when it talks about the death of the old man and that he's been put to death and he's powerless, it speaks of the fact that his power in your life is only there if you give it power. And I always compare it 
to the stray cat in your neighborhood. If you feed it, it'll keep coming back. Don't feed it, it'll go somewhere else. Don't feed the flesh and it won't come back. It won't have power in your life. And that's what God is wanting to do with these children of Israel is move them into the promised land and it's what He wants to do in our life. And I think that crossing of the Jordan that they were about to do, as they're right there on the shores of the Jordan River, they're going to cross through it. I think it represents baptism, filling of the Holy Spirit. I think that has a lot to do with the difference between an immature, desert-wandering believer and a mature, abundant life, promised land believer. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses, to, to do the things that I've put before you. And it's a different preposition than He uses for salvation, which is the Spirit comes in you. And so I don't think it, it takes a theologian to recognize that there is a, a subsequent work of the Spirit in our life where the Spirit now is coming upon you for works of ministry, for maturity, for victory over the flesh. And some of us need that. We need that crossing of the Jordan experience. And there's a huge difference. There's a just a world of difference between living in the desert like Moses and the rest and peering into the promised land and talking about it. And I think that's where many Christians deceive themselves is that they believe they're in the promised land when in reality they're in the desert, they're wandering around aimlessly, but they talk about the promised land. And they talk about the grapes and they talk about the land flowing with milk and honey and they talk about all of the blessings. But it's just a lot of talk. And, and you recognize the difference when you enter into the promised land and you're receiving of those things and you're entering into those things and you're experiencing and appropriating those things into your life. There's a huge difference. And only you know if you're on the east side talking about it or if you're actually in it, experiencing it. It goes on, verse 4, or verse 3, Now it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. And after he killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtaroth and Adrai, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, into Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
to give to them and their descendants after them. And so God is now telling this new generation of the boundaries of the land that He's given them. This was a huge amount of land geographically that He had set aside for them, and and yet history tells us that they only really took possession of a very small portion of that. They were given a large amount, but they only took possession of of a very small amount. There's great application for us. God has told us that He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He said, everything that you need for a life of godliness is at your disposal. And so there it is. It's all there for us, and yet many of us are content to just partake of a little bit. And we go, you know what, this is good enough. I'm content here, it's cool. And that's what the children of Israel did. They got enough. They got what they needed, but they didn't enter into all that God had promised them. In fact, He had promised it to their forefathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 400 plus years before this, these promises were given. And man, God comes through with His promises. He doesn't forget. He doesn't say, you know what, you blew it. And I'm sorry, when God promises something, He never turns His back on that. In verses 9 through 18, we see the leaders that were picked by Moses. Moses recounts the selection of the 70 elders. The original story is found in Numbers chapter 11. It says, And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. Moses was getting overwhelmed with the amount of work can imagine he was overseeing two million people. And the Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today, as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. And so Moses was just totally overwhelmed, if you remember back when we were studying that. And he chose these 70 men to, to oversee thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they were like elders, if you will. They were leaders. And it's super important in every church, in every facet of life, that leaders be raising up other leaders. Now, this is an extreme example where a guy is overseeing two million people, but even in much smaller numbers, even in a church of our size, I feel that it's one of my primary jobs to be raising up leaders. And we've been doing that, and I continue to do that. We have sort of in our mind uh, with the the way that the, the church has sort of just been patterned that, you know, we need to go to the pastor, and, and, and it's sort of a lot about the pastor. And, and I certainly uh, don't mind uh, dealing uh, with issues and problems and counseling people, but there comes a point where I can't even handle uh, what, what is put before me. And, and that's why there's other leaders, and you don't need me. First of all, the, the reason that we would do that is because I, I don't want people to be dependent upon me. The second reason is that God has gifted other leaders in the church 
And you might find that that you like them more than you like me in terms of their counsel and, and their ability to minister to you. And so that's why we have on the back of the bulletin the elders' names and we're raising up more leaders. And it takes time. When you start a church from you know ground zero and you start from a Bible study with a couple people and it just takes a lot of time to raise up leaders. And, and we're doing that. And I'm constantly pouring in to guys and into men and raising up men. And, and it's a lot of work. But those guys are are there for you uh, to receive from and to be blessed by. And, and so don't take me wrong. I'm not saying that, that I'm unwilling. I'm saying that as we grow as a church, that's what has to happen. And I think until those leaders are in place and until they understand what their role and function is and they're doing their job and you're allowing them to do their job, we won't grow as a church because God will just say, you know, how can I send more people if they're not going to be properly ministered to? But I love verse uh, 13. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men. There were qualifications for these guys from among your tribes. And so these were men who were already there, who they already recognized. They, they were already doing this work. And that has been... Uh, one of the things that was taught to me that in selecting leaders, you select men who are already doing the work. Recognize those guys who are already leading. And they don't need a title to do what they do. They just are already doing it and you come along and you just ratify that. And that's, that's what was happening here. So I took the heads of your tribes wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. Verses 19 through 33 is really Israel's refusal to enter the promised land. And so Moses recounts that. He says, We departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. So they, they came to that place that they're presently at. But this was 38 and a half years previous to this. We came to that place and I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us. And let us search out the land and bring back word by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well. So I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. Now notice it says the plan pleased me well. It pleased Moses, but it didn't please God. Moses thought, yeah, this is a good idea. We'll send some guys in. We'll check it out. But let's think about this for a minute. Why? God had already told them to enter the land. Why are they now scoping it out? 
What's the only possible reason that you would send spies in is because you're afraid. You're not trusting God. So this whole plan that pleased Moses was an absolutely terrible idea. When God tells us to do something, we don't need to scope it out or do a survey. We just need to do it. Trust the Lord. But Moses didn't pray about this. He just did what made sense to him. And they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. Then also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And, of course, these are the giants that were in the land. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. And all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. Israel failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. They chose to believe the report of the spies rather than the word of God. And this happens in our life all the time. We, we choose to believe the word of man rather than the word of God. We choose to believe what people are telling us rather than what God has already told us. And Moses here is, is saying, look, you know, God's told us He's going to give us the land and, and don't be afraid, but, you know, it's a little too late for that. Moses had already blown it by telling them to go spy it out. What was the point of that? Now they're afraid. Now they've forgotten about all of the things that God has done before. And now all they're thinking about is the giants in the land. And I think there's an interesting uh, verse here. It says that they complained in their tents, verse 27. And this would speak to me that the men were given reports. The spies went into the land. They, they would have come back. They would have gathered the men together. They would have told them exactly what they saw. And then the men went back to their tents at night and they complained to their wives and they told their wives how scared they were and that this wasn't going to work. And I just thought, you know, what a great illustration for us as men, as leaders of our homes, not to discourage our families, not to tell our wives that, you know, this isn't going to work or that, you know, we're not going to trust God or that we're afraid of this and that. And, you know, we need to be leaders in our homes and we need to be taking steps of faith and we need to be trusting the Lord because our wives respond to us. And when we're not trusting God, then they're not going to trust God. And there was a penalty for Israel's rebellion. Our choices have consequences. Verses 34 to 46 demonstrate the consequences for their failure. It says, the Lord, the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers. And so God said, look, they're all going to die in the wilderness except Caleb and Joshua. 
verse 38 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Puts Moses in an interesting position, doesn't it? Hey, Moses, you won't get to go into the promised land. You blew it. We're going to talk about that. You blew it. You misrepresented me, so you're not going in. But Caleb and Joshua are. In fact, Joshua is going to take your place. He's going to be the leader. I want you to encourage him. Now, I think our, our human tendency, the flesh, would say, Hey, I'm not going to encourage this guy. He's taking my place. He's making me look bad. He gets to do what I've wanted to do. I hear I do all this work and I put up with these lousy people for all this time. And I obeyed you and I left the comfort of working for my father-in-law and I went and I signed up for this job to free these people and I make one mistake and I can't enter in and now Joshua gets to do it and now you want me to encourage him? I think we can put ourselves in Moses' shoes. You know, somebody gets a promotion ahead of you. Somebody gets recognized and you don't. And it's very easy for us to be a discouragement to that person. To want to make their life miserable because we're jealous of them. And God says to Moses, I want you to encourage him. And maybe there's, there's a word in that for us. Maybe there's someone in our life that, that we're jealous of, that we're envious toward, that we've been just really trying to make their life miserable. And we've been discouraging them. And, and God is telling us tonight, I want you to encourage them. Moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So the very ones that they were afraid for, if you remember back in Numbers, they were afraid for their children. The very ones they were afraid for, guess what? They're going in and without them. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelled in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. Man, the very thing that God told them to do, they didn't do. And the very thing that God told them not to do, they did. Is that a description of your life and my life or what? Lord says, do this and we don't do it. The Lord says, don't do this and we, we do that thing. And Paul relates to that in Romans chapter 7. I was telling you about Romans 6, 7 and 8. In Romans 6, he talks about the sin and the flesh life. In Romans 7, he gets very descriptive and he says, man, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will deliver me from this bondage of death thank god he says for salvation through jesus christ and then he goes on in romans 8 to talk about the spirit life and the victory that we have through the power of the spirit but here the thing god told him to enter in no we're not going to do that 
So there were consequences. Okay, well, we're going to go up. We're going to fight against this nation here. And God says, I don't know what you're doing. I didn't tell you to do that. And they do it anyway. And then they get chased and killed and ravaged. There was consequences for their failure was that they were not able to enter the promised land. They died in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Not only eternal death, but sin brings death. When we choose sin, it brings death into our life. It brings death into our marriages. It brings death into all facets of our life. Relationships, ministries, your witness. It kills. Sin destroys. And in chapter 2 through verse 29 of chapter 3, it's really an overview of Israel en route to the Jordan River. Moses recounts, How the Lord finally said to him, You have been wandering in the hill country long enough. Turn northward. Head to the promised land. The the people are are dying slowly but surely out there in the wilderness. And it it always kind of blows my mind. You know, it's like, were they waiting for that last guy to just croak? You know, was it kind of like, Come on, dude, will you just die so we can get on with things? I mean, were they just, you know, like dropping a little bit of cyanide in his water or... Or, or I, it just kind of trips me out if you think about it. You know, were they just sitting around like the last guy and he's just not doing well and they're like, no, don't help him out, you know. But here they are and, and people are, are steadily but surely dying and, and it talks about these three friendly nations. Uh, Seir, the Lord says, don't bother them for I have given them all the hill country around Seir as their property. I will not give you any of their land, verses 4 through 8. talks about Moab, who were the descendants of Lot. And you remember Lot had relations with his daughters after uh, he left um, Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife was turned into a pillar of salt and then they were despairing, what are we going to do? And, and Lot took things into his own hands. He got drunk and, you know, the whole incestuous thing, just totally bizarre. The, this was the result of that decision, the Moabites. That, that was pretty good decision. The Moabites were some of the fiercest enemies of the Israelites. But he says, look, don't bother the Moabites. I've given them uh, this land. I will not give you any of of their land. Uh, The Ammonites, who were uh, more descendants of of Lot, uh, don't don't bother them. And so these are some um, nations that God says, look, you're going to have problems with them later, but for right now, uh, just leave them alone. And and then he talks about the foes, enemy nations. Uh, King Sihon of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan. He talks about how the Israelites uh, just wiped them out and and God gave them victory over them. And this this King Og, it tells us uh, in verse uh, 11, I believe, of chapter 3. It tells us that his... Yes, verse 11 of chapter 3. It tells us his bed was... 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. So this was a huge guy. And, and this was the, the kind of people that, that they were up against. And yet the Lord gave them victory over these people. And then in verses 12 and following, we see the, the land east of the Jordan divided. And this land which we possessed at that time by the river Arnon and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. You remember that these tribes wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. We talked about that. Just being content with where they were at. And it was totally not what the Lord had, but He gave in to their request. 
The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the king of kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Jer, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of, of Argob as far as the border of the Ger- Gersherites and these other guys. And just goes on to talk about the, the, uh, the really poor decision by these guys to just hang out on the east side of the Jordan rather than pressing in. And then in verse 23, we see the request of Moses. It says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time. They're about to enter in. The, the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh says, you know, we're going to stay over here. And, and Moses says, okay, Lord, please let me go in. I pleaded with the Lord. And I said, oh, Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, these pleasant mountains in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. And so the Lord answered Moses' prayer. He answered it with a definitive no. And sometimes we mistake God's no for him not answering. And God says, look, I don't want you to ask me about that anymore. I've given you my answer. It's no. Move on. Accomplish what I am allowing you to accomplish. And we remember the reason why Moses could not go into the promised land. It was because God told Moses at a, at a point where the Israelites were dying of thirst and they were complaining about the water, that they had no water. And, and Moses was just fed up with these people and all their complaints and not trusting God. And God said, look, Moses, I want you to go out there and I want you to speak to the rock. And you remember this rock just kind of followed them around. I mean, think about the stuff that happened in the wilderness, a cloud by day, just, you know, one cloud just following them, or actually they were following it, a fire by night, and this rock that would just be like always there with them. And there it was. And, and Moses said, okay, I'll, I'll speak to that rock. God said, just, just speak to it and water will flow out. And Moses thought, okay, I can do that. And he went out there and instead of speaking to the rock, he took his rod, the very thing that God was using powerfully in his life, and he struck the rock. And, and God blessed the people. Water flowed out. And God will, will use leaders even when they make mistakes and even when they blow it and they don't do things the way God wants them to do it. He'll, he'll still minister to the people. He's always faithful to do that. And God ministered to the people with the water. And then God said, Hey, Moses, I want to talk to you. You remember how I said just speak to the rock? Well, you didn't do that. You struck the rock. And we know from the New Testament that that rock pictured Christ. And that Jesus was crucified once for our sins. And you remember earlier in Exodus, Moses struck the rock. That's what God instructed him to do. And Jesus was struck once for sin. But now we just speak to Jesus. We just can go to Him boldly. He he no longer needs to be crucified. And Moses really messed up the model. And he misrepresented God because God was not angry with the people. Moses was angry with the people. And Moses took out his frustrations on the people and God wasn't happy with that. And God said, look, you've misrepresented me and so you will not be able to go into the promised land. And there's a lot typologically in that because Moses, of course, is a representation of the law. Moses received the law. And... The law can only take you so far. 
But Joshua, who really is a type of Christ. In fact, his name is the, is the Hebrew version of the Greek Jesus, Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. Joshua is a picture of Christ. And so Moses the law can only take us so far. Joshua, our Jesus, is the one that can take us all the way in. The law, you guys, it will bring us to the point of understanding that we're a sinner. Just like a mirror will show you the blemishes and the things in your face that need to be taken care of, but the mirror can do nothing to remove those. The law is like a mirror. It shows you you're a sinner. Like Galatians says, it will drive you to Christ. It's a schoolmaster to show you what you need. But then Jesus will set you free from that. And so there's there's a lot of typology going on here too. But Moses is begging God, look, I want to go into the promised land. And God says, enough of this. You're not going in. It's, it's not even like something that we're going to talk about anymore. But then he said, look, go up to the top of Pisgah, which is a mountain. Lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. In other words, look, go up to the highest point, and you can go ahead and look in. And I've been up on Mount Pisgah, and you can look right in to, to that area that God was giving to the people, the land of Canaan. And so it's really kind of cool, because God is telling Moses, look, you can't enter in, but I'll let you see it. Here's some grace. And, and God always wants to give grace to us. In fact, later on, much later on, Jesus would be on another mountain transfiguring himself before Peter, James, and John. And remember who showed up? Moses and Elijah. And so Moses was able to enter the promised land. Some people think that Moses will be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And there again, he'll be able to enter the promised land. And I mean, look, he's going to live in it for eternity as God sets up his throne and his kingdom. And so it's not like Moses got the shaft here. He, God is gracious. But God says to Moses, look, command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people. He shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. And I just, I love that in the sense that Moses still had things to accomplish. Moses still had gifts that God wanted to use in his life. And, and maybe there's things that God says, look, you're not able to do that. I'm not going to use you in that way. I know that you really want to do this thing, but I'm closing the doors. That doesn't mean that you are worthless or that there's nothing for you to do. Moses could have said, you know what, Lord, then just forget it. If I can't do what I want to do, then I'm done. I'm just going to sit over here against a cactus and I'm just going to, you know, pout myself. There aren't any cactuses in Israel, but, you know, it sounds good. I'm just going to pout myself to death. Joshua, yeah, you go do your thing. You know, forget forget you. But he had work to do. He, He could pour into Joshua. Maybe there's things that God's saying, look, you're not going to do that, but don't feel sorry for yourself because God has things for you to do. Quickly, chapter 4. Moses commands obedience from the people. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God, the Lord God of your fathers, is giving you. So listen, tune in to what I'm telling you. 
You shall not add to the word which I command you. That's huge. Don't add to the word of God. And how many people are doing that today? Putting their own spin on the word, adding to the word, adding to salvation, adding to the grace of God. And that's a very scary place to be. Don't add to it, nor take from it. How many people are taking from the word? They're, they're just basically erasing things that they don't like. Well, Jesus really never said that. And, you know, we're just ripping out pages of the Bible that we don't necessarily agree with. And the problem with that becomes, who is the determiner of what is truth or what isn't truth? We have to take the whole Bible or we throw it completely out. And I have a lot more respect for people that just say, look, I don't believe one word of that Bible than I do for people that say, well, you know, Jesus was a good teacher and this is what I believe about what he said. And, and so, oh, okay, you become the determiner of what is truth and what isn't truth. You either take it all or you, you don't take any of it. That, that's Christianity in a nutshell. It comes as a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Beel Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. And of course, Baal is a, a false god. But you who hold fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore... Be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day. Only take heed to yourself, and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So basically what God is saying is, look, don't forget my word. Don't neglect it. Don't turn your back on it. It is life for you. These aren't good thoughts. These aren't like suggestions. These aren't some things that... You know, if it's convenient, maybe you want to take a look at them. These are the very words of God, not only to them, but to us. And it says that they didn't see a form, they only heard His voice. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I've never seen God. And I don't think I will. 
He doesn't make a habit of, you know, showing up like a lot of people say he does, like at their uh, you know, foot of their bed. All of a sudden they saw God. And maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know, but I haven't seen him. But what I have heard is his voice. And he tells us in his word, look, you can rely upon this. This is what I'm giving you. You either believe it or you don't. But if you turn your back on it, you'll wish you hadn't. He says, take careful heed to yourself. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water. Basically saying is, don't worship other stuff. Don't try to worship things that you can see. And today we're not worshiping uh, little idols or crafting little fish. We don't do that. We don't have all kinds of figurines. But we worship all kinds of things other than God. And our culture is steeped in idol worship. We worship the God of money. We worship the God of power. We worship the God of sex. And many, many lives are being sacrificed at the altar of these gods. It's no different And we may consider ourselves to be more intelligent than these stupid idiots that crafted little idols to bow down to. And oh, I mean, how archaic can you get? What simpletons. But we are doing the very same things to the very same gods, just in a more technological way. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be His people and inheritance as you are this day. And so God brought them out of Egypt for a purpose, to be His people. And listen, you guys, God has brought us out of the life of the flesh to be His people. He hasn't brought us out of the life of the flesh so that then we could go and worship other gods. He wants us to be completely and wholly given over to Him. He says in verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What happens when fire touches other things? In Southern California, there's just fires racing through the mountains, right? Sliding everything on fire. A fire begets fire. And God is a consuming fire. And when He takes a hold of your life, He sets you on fire. And God says to you, I want to consume your life. I want you to be completely on fire for me. Paul said at the end of his life, as he's writing to Timothy, he said, my life has been poured out as a drink offering. A drink offering was that offering that they poured on the altar, the the burning white hot altar. They would pour the, the water. And what happens when you pour water on scorching hot rocks or coals. It just disappears. And it was a it was a way for them to just simply say, God, my life is yours. Consume me, take me, and I don't want to have anything left. And that's what God wants for us. He wants our life to be completely given over to Him. And when we die, there's nothing left. There's nothing that we left for the world to consume. He's a jealous God He doesn't want us committing adultery with the things of this world. He says, you belong to me. You're my bride. And when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything 
and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Now we live 2,000, 3,000 plus years from this. And what have we seen from the children of Israel? What have we seen from the Jewish people? We've seen nothing but this verse coming to pass. Destruction. At one point, almost their entire nation, almost their entire peoples were wiped out by the Nazis. And you can go all the way back throughout their whole history because they did not heed the Word of God. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. And that's what's so awesome about the Lord in the history of the, the Israeli people. That every time they turn back to the Lord, He met them there. He always met them and He always blessed them. And, and He never said, you know, look, you've, you've messed up too much. I'm, I'm done with you. He always responded to repentance. And God still responds to repentance. He, he is a God who never gives up on us. We can never exhaust His grace, His mercy, and His kindness. And it goes on just to talk about what will happen to them if they don't heed the Word of God. And, I mean, all the things that the Lord said would happen, happened. And you look at the history of the nation of Israel, and it's just one judgment of God after another. And it, the same will be true in our life. If we don't heed the Word of God, if we don't do what God is asking us to do. And so, some great reminders for us, some things that we need to put into practice, that we need to be aware of. That God says, Look, I've given you all things for a life of godliness. I want you to enter in, and it's our choice. And then God says, Okay, once you've entered in, I want you to, to be completely and wholly dedicated to me, not having any idols, not being influenced by this world. I've given you victory. Just like as we're going to get into Joshua, he's, he had given them victory over all these cities that they were to go and to conquer. And he's given us victory. We have challenges. We have battles. But he's given us victory. And the Bible says that no temptation has overcome us, has come upon us that we aren't able to escape from. And so God won't give us anything that we can't handle. And so when we give in and we, we're defeated... It's not because He hasn't given us the power. It's because we've chosen not to use it. And so there's great, great application for us. And we could go on talking about this all night, but we won't. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, Lord, that has such great application for us. And Lord, may we leave here desiring to be doers of Your Word and not hearers only. Lord, may these truths, may these promises, may these reminders take hold of our heart, Jesus. Capture our heart. Consume our lives. You're a consuming fire, Lord. Take us. We offer ourselves to You. Not to anyone or anything else, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info 
at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.